Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know, Jim, I love doing these podcasts with you. And and one reason why is that apart from being smart and curious about so many things, you're kind of an optimist. Well, not everyone would see me as quite as sunny as you are, Richard. But I do think we live in a time when far too many people are really gloomy about the state of the world, when in fact, a lot of things are going in the right direction. But it's hard not to be gloomy about the topic of today's podcast, facing up to our mountain of public debt. Chris Lowe. If you miss a payment, it is a default. The U.S. credit rating goes from the second highest possible to the lowest possible overnight. It would be painful, and that pain would be felt by every business, every consumer, every household that borrows. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? We're going to challenge ourselves and talk about something that's easier to see in print than to hear about. Numbers. You know, on a podcast, we can't use charts and graphics uh, the way I've so often done as a magazine editor. And we don't have a bar graph to show the huge numbers involved when we're speaking about the federal debt or annual deficits. The reality is they've skyrocketed just in recent years. Yeah, in fact, America's debt is now six times where it was in 2000, and the overall figure is growing even larger. Some of this increase was because of the financial crisis in 2008, and then the economic havoc caused for the better part of three years by the COVID pandemic. Last month, the United States hit its $31.4 trillion legal limit on how much it can borrow. Some Republicans are refusing to raise that limit unless President Biden agrees to deep spending cuts. So a partisan standoff may be coming, possibly even a default. That would have chilling consequences for the economy. But let's also look at how we got here and see if we can figure out a way to reduce the level of debt that, Richard, it may not affect you and me so much, but it certainly affects our children and anyone who's looking forward to their financial future in this country. 
Chris Lowe is Chief Economist at FHN Financial, which provides fixed income advice and solutions for clients. And as the son of an economist and remembering many interesting conversations around the dinner table, I always love it when we have economists on the podcast. Let's go to our interview. First, Chris, uh, welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, I think. (laughs) We'll find out. Let's start with today. Why does the government have to raise the debt ceiling? That's a really good question. It's sort of a a dinosaur of a law that goes way back to the early 1900s. It's tied to the congressional power of the purse. Congress decided that they needed an explicit number of uh, how much debt they were willing to issue. Because of that, there is this limit in place now. And uh, Treasury hit it. And as a result, we're already in this emergency management phase where they start juggling obligations in order to pay the interest on the debt. So it's kind of a game of chicken, right? I mean, the White House on one side and the congressional Republicans on the other side want the other side to blink first to avoid a default on government debt. What would happen if the ceiling wasn't raised? That's when things would get interesting. We know in the past that Treasury has put together sort of secret plans to tap pools of money within the government in order to keep things going. And they could probably for a week or two past what we lovingly call the drop dead date. But, uh, you know, even if the drop dead date isn't actually the drop dead date, it's probably a couple of weeks later. So that's the idea. So what happens if we go past the drop dead date? Is it a disaster for the economy? Yeah, it probably is because uh, there's plenty of examples of what happens when governments don't pay debt when it's due. One potential solution people have talked about is, hey, just issue everybody with an IOU. As soon as Congress gets its act together, we'll give you the money. But it's not that simple. If you miss a payment, it is a default. The U.S. credit rating goes from the second highest possible to the lowest possible overnight. Debt issued in the future would be more expensive. It would mean that budget deficits are bigger. It would mean ultimately less money to spend. It would mean that the cost of everything that's based on treasury interest rates, which includes credit cards, mortgages, car loans, uh, you know, any kind of private sector borrowing would be more expensive. So, yeah, it would be painful and that pain would be felt by every business, every consumer, every household that borrows. Our debt is what the government owes foreign governments and institutions for the money it's borrowed over the years. And in recent years, we've benefited a lot from having very low interest rates, but those have gone up a lot. How much of the current budget is being spent paying off the the interest servicing that debt? Uh, Believe it or not, not that much yet. And and the reason is there's still a lot of long-term debt that was issued when those interest rates were low. And if you think about what the Fed is trying to accomplish by raising rates now, the the purpose is to, to slow the economy quickly and lower inflation quickly 
so that once inflation comes down, interest rates can come down. Effectively, the debt the government issues in the future, say two, three years from now, will be at low interest rates again. Uh, That really is why the Fed is in such a hurry to get it done. And I I think implied in your question is the possibility that uh, rates aren't going to come down as much if we hit this debt ceiling and miss a debt payment. And you're absolutely right. That's true. Low interest rates, the fact that servicing the debt has not blown a huge hole in the overall government budget, is that one reason why so many politicians, even economists, have not been alarmed to date about our massive debt mountain of $31.4 trillion? You you know, I I think the, 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 the thing is we are pretty alarmed by it. But most economists agreed during the throes of the worst pandemic months that it was worth doing whatever we could to keep the economy going. At this point, we're actually on track because uh, tax revenues have been really healthy the last 18 months or so. The, The deficit is shrinking pretty quickly. And that's even despite some of the big spending that we've seen in the last 12 months. So uh, we're, we're on a path to where it turns out it's probably pretty sustainable. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend multi-trillion dollar budget increases in the near term if we can avoid it, but we're okay. This isn't the first time we've had drama over the debt ceiling and the threat of a government shutdown. So what's new this time? The biggest difference between the conversation today and the last time we we really came close to default was 2011. And uh, in 2011, both sides, Republicans and Democrats, wanted to shrink the uh, deficit. Uh, the, the, The argument was over how to do it. The Republicans wanted spending cuts, President Obama and the Democrats wanted tax increases. Interestingly enough, the the guy who led the negotiation, the one who bound a middle ground, was Vice President Joe Biden. So he has actually negotiated a situation like that. But this time, he goes into the negotiation saying that his position is he just wants a debt ceiling increase, a clean, no strings attached, and then he'll negotiate the budget separately. And of course, the Republicans are trying to combine the two. Do you think the debt ceiling will be fixed? Will avoid a default? It it will be fixed. And the reason I think it will be fixed is that there is this drop dead date. And up to the drop dead date, the Republicans hold most of the cards because they, uh, you know, they're the ones who have the power to raise the debt ceiling up until that point, there's really no consequences to not raising the debt ceiling. Once we get past that and the Treasury has to resort to really extraordinary measures, one of them is to shut down the government. And when the government is shut down and thousands of people aren't, hundreds of thousands aren't being paid anymore, the sentiment shifts and the president holds the cards. And they know that in Congress. So the Republicans need a solution before the drop dead date. 
And I think the president has really cleverly given them an out. And that is the Republican demand is we want to negotiate the budget before we raise the debt ceiling. The president's saying, I'm not negotiating the budget as part of the debt ceiling talks, but I'm happy to have parallel negotiations. So all Kevin McCarthy has to do is say, you know what, that's effectively the same thing. It's good enough for us and raise the debt ceiling. And I think that's precisely what they will do. Uh, you know, the, the, the issue we have to worry about, of course, is if all of the Republicans in the House are, un, are not willing to vote for a debt ceiling increase, then at least some of the Democrats have to vote for it. Looking down the road a little bit at things that will uh, drive up the deficit, a lot of people focus on government spending, but most of it, looking forward, is entitlements, Medicaid and Social Security, Medicare. There doesn't seem to be any appetite in either party to look seriously at even lowering the rate of increase in those expenditures. No, and in fact... uh go one further, right? These are huge issues with older voters and older voters vote in huge numbers. Um, so they, they are effectively untouchable. Although we have seen other places, uh, France, for example, right now trying to raise its retirement age. Uh, and uh, of course, there are millions of people on strike and in the streets. Uh, you can see how difficult that can be politically. As I was preparing for the podcast, it struck me that, you know, our population keeps getting older and our birth rate keeps declining. And it means a smaller percentage of voters have children or teenagers or even young adults in their family whose futures they're focused on. Is that one reason the public seems so blasé about the deficit? I I think part of it is that there hasn't been a champion of responsible spending or responsible taxation in years. The Republicans under President Trump were perfectly happy to cut taxes dramatically, and that caused the deficit to expand. And then, of course, when Joe Biden came into office, we were still looking at uh, an astonishingly high number of unemployed and people had been clamoring for a third pandemic bill uh, you know for months. So the focus has been on spending or tax cuts. It would be kind of nice to see a bipartisan uh, level of concern rise. I, I think the other thing is, and as an economist, I would argue this is a huge mistake. But people are thinking, gee, we issued all this debt and it was no problem. The, the you know, interest rates really didn't even rise. So what are we worried about? We can borrow forever. And what, what I would say to that is that, that there's countless historical examples of people having that attitude and you borrow right up until the day that lenders decide, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. And then it, it's a disaster. You don't want to go down that road. You don't want to tempt that fate. So one day, U.S. debt levels could be so high that lenders will demand higher interest rates before lending to us. So is this increase in U.S. government debt unprecedented? 
there was a bigger increase in Japan. Japan's debt to GDP is, is quite a bit bigger than ours. But the difference is that when the Japanese economy was booming in the 80s and 90s, they also had a, a 20 plus percent saving rate. So most of their debt is financed domestically. Uh, in the U.S., we rely on foreigners to finance a lot of our debt. So who holds most of our debt? The biggest debt holder right now, treasury debt holder, is the Federal Reserve. That's government debt owed by the government, owned by the government, effectively. So set that aside because it's a wash. And then uh, China becomes the biggest holder. Behind them, the U.S. banking system is an enormous holder. Uh, behind them, uh, Japan still owns quite a bit of debt. And then collectively, it's the central banks globally uh, that park what, what are called reserve assets in dollars. Uh, the reason they do that is because there's a perception that it's the safest place to put money. Uh, they don't necessarily want to put money in uh Chinese yuan because uh, the Chinese manipulate the currency and the, their economy is opaque. We don't really know how big it is. Uh, they don't want to put it in Europe because the European banking system is fragile. But I tell you, if there's a bigger problem that emerges in the U.S., then obviously the money will flow to the second biggest problem, which means probably Europe will become the uh, reserve holder instead of the U.S., and if that happens, our interest rates will go up. Uh, that could trigger a nasty recession, even a financial crisis. Yeah, it would definitely be an adjustment that I think would include aspects of all three of those things. Absolutely. It would mean a decline in living standards that's instant and likely long lasting. You're so polite, Chris. You said it'll mean an adjustment. <laughs> well, it sounds it's, it's, it's adjustment a painful sounds, adjustment. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies, and we're speaking with Chris Lowe about government debt and deficits. And a quick reminder to our listeners before we return to the interview, uh, we have a newsletter, which is which is publishing a little bit more frequently now, and you can find out more. Now that you're doing it instead of me, is that what you're saying, exactly, Richard? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we all know that you hate to write. <laughs> Just because I'm a professional writer doesn't mean that I'm particularly attentive to deadlines. <laughs> you, can, you can sign up for our newsletter, which kind of lifts the curtain on what we're doing, and, and we also invite our listeners to uh, give us some ideas of what you'd like to hear us uh, discussing or asking questions about, and just simply go to howdowefixit.me to sign up for the newsletter. And now back to our interview. So, so for the last 30 years, we've had this extraordinary run-up of trade with China and extraordinary flows of money to China and goods to the U.S. and in Chinese investment in our debt. And that's all changing now. What would happen if at a certain point China says, we don't want to invest in you anymore. We're going to find other places to put our money. Why are we rewarding you if you're going to be so antagonistic to us in, in their view? Then what happens? Well, we're, we're about to find out uh, because it's already underway that they are shifting assets 
into other things. Uh, they've created, for example, a strategic oil reserve that is, uh, you know, size rivaling the U.S. And what that meant was using a lot of dollars to buy oil instead of buying treasury bonds and parking it in these enormous reservoirs. Um, that's effectively a bank account invested in commodities rather than treasuries. They bought gold. They have bought Russian rubles. And uh, their U.S. dollar holdings are still massive, but they're really not growing anymore. You know, we, we have to find other people to buy our debt. Now, the good news is there are other buyers out there. Interest rates rise just a little bit. And then those other buyers, their appetite increases and they soak up the supply. So I'm not particularly worried about it. In fact, I think long run, it's probably a good thing because it makes us a little less vulnerable to China just suddenly going cold turkey. Let's say we, we fix the immediate crisis of the debt ceiling. Then down the road, government deficits continue to grow and the debt continues to rise. What would happen if we just went into default? What if the government said to the financial market, sorry, we, we can't pay you guys back. We're broke. Well, you know, the big thing is we then have to start living within our, our means, which at the moment means that we would have to cut spending by hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And we could do that effectively by eliminating military spending, for example, but that would have repercussions. We could do it by significantly cutting uh, Social Security and Medicare spending, for example, by raising the retirement age. Uh, that would have repercussions. One way to think about it is that uh, we would certainly not be the superpower with all of the superpower things that go with it, being the world's policeman, effectively being able to step in and provide humanitarian aid when we want to or need to and so forth. We just couldn't afford any of those things. And uh, again, living standards here would decline as well going through that that uh, transition. So it's it's something you want to avoid if you possibly can. And the thing is, we can avoid it. The problem is we, we need politicians to have just a little more foresight, I think, than they do. Think a little less short term and a little more long term. Now, we hear a lot about tax cuts for the rich and the idea that uh, rich people and corporations just aren't paying enough and we just need to tax the 1%. That, that would take care of this problem. What's the reality there? Um, the, the reality is that the 1% aren't quite big enough to handle that problem unless you did something like a wealth tax. Wealth tax is tricky, though. When you, when you say wealth tax, you mean instead of just taxing people's annual income, you're taxing their, their investment holdings as well. You're effectively taxing their net worth. Italy did this. They, they had a budget crisis in the 90s. Everybody had to state what they owned and pay 10%. One time, it was hugely controversial. It fixed their budget problem for you know 20 years until their government created a new budget problem. 
but the difficulty doing that, remember, we've got billionaires here. Uh, so 10% of their net worth is quite a bit of money. In fact, we've got decibillionaires and centibillionaires. We could definitely get some cash. But the Constitution allows income to be taxed. It doesn't necessarily allow wealth to be taxed. So it would be challenged in the courts. It's difficult to do. And Congress has never tried. Then you run into the problem that uh, Warren Buffett brings up all the time, that he pays less tax than his secretary. And the reason is that his income isn't all that high as a percentage of the money he's taking in. And that gets to what I think you were getting at capital gains and taxes on interest income, which are set lower than income tax. Um, and the way around that is that, and, and there is to some extent, uh, the, the alternative minimum tax, which kicks in. And then also uh, you could have an adjustable tax on capital gains, for example, which we do have now where you pay a higher rate uh, over a certain percent, uh, a, a amount of dollars. Like so many things, wealth tax sounds great. Sounds like a great slogan, but you've pointed out that uh, it might be unconstitutional. And also, those billionaires would scramble and hide a lot of their wealth, wouldn't they? They'd park it overseas. They'd, there'd be, it would be enormously complicated and difficult to collect, right? Yeah. Well, a lot of them would probably scramble overseas <laughs> with their assets, too. So then they're not necessarily paying income tax either, which is you know, countries that have tried to do this kind of thing, the UK, for example, had uh, a, an income tax that rose effectively to 100 percent, a marginal tax rate that took everything over a certain dollar amount. And, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones exile on Main Street came from that era because they left the country so, to record. And so did the France. so did the Beatles song Taxman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now you're really dating yourself. <laughs> yeah, there's this sense that, oh, well, the rich people have all these tax breaks. They're not really paying taxes. But the top 1% pay something like 40% of, of income taxes today, don't they? Yeah, um, and close to 50% don't pay federal taxes. So we, we have a very progressive system. You mean uh, close to 50% of American taxpayers don't pay federal taxes. That's that's right. Yeah. Uh, or American households yeah. don't pay. Uh, but it's obviously it's not enough. You, you know, we, we government has a list of priorities for spending that's bigger than what they take in. And so we run a deficit. Is one solution to get more people back into the workforce, build a lot more housing and, and create more wealth? and therefore uh, broaden our, our tax base and get more revenue that way. Absolutely. You know, one of the ways in which I think our system is really broken goes back to the very first speech, believe it or not, Janet Yellen made when she was chair of the Fed. And she said the biggest economic challenge of our time is income inequality. Since then, it's gotten worse. Uh, when you think about most of the stimulus we've had since then, too, the things that the government has done to help the economy in times of trouble, when we go back and look at who actually got the money, wealthy Americans got 
much more than poor Americans. Even, you know, the pandemic aid, which we, we, we think about the checks that were mailed to households, it, it, those were tiny compared to the money that went out, for example, in uh, PPP loans, which were the small business loans. Most of the people who got those loans are relatively wealthy Americans. They're business owners. You know, I, I think, in fact, the tax the rich idea, uh, if we can figure out a way to do it, um, is probably the right way to fix a lot of issues right now, including uh, rampant inflation, because it is the rich who still have excess savings from the pandemic. They're the ones who are keeping spending going. And that's the reason inflation's running so hot. So any thoughts on how to do that? Any thoughts on how to tax the rich that, that wouldn't just simply uh, reduce incentives for, for wealthy people to open new businesses and create new jobs? Sure. Uh, the way I would have done it if you know I was king for a day, I would raise the top tax bracket, but for two years so that it goes up and comes back down again. The thing about temporary changes in taxes versus permanent changes in taxes is that behavior tends to change when there's a permanent tax change, but it doesn't change when there's a temporary change. And I think that's the best way to avoid sort of chasing those rich people out um, giving them an incentive to move their business interests out of the United States and so on. Do it on a one-off basis. Just two years of uh, an extra 10% on the top rate, and that would go a pretty long way to, uh, first of all, draining some of that excess saving, which is fueling inflation, and also you know, helping with the deficit mess. Thank you, Chris Lowe. Chris Lowe, and next... Our recommendation. Richard, you said you've got something good for us this week. Yes, it's death cleaning. <laughs> or as the Swedes call it, dostadning. I probably totally mucked up that uh, pronunciation. It's a book by an 89-year-old Swedish woman, Margareta Magnusson. And the title of her book is The Gentle Swedish Art of death cleaning. The idea is that uh, we should, in our 60s and 70s, if we've got that old, should start removing unnecessary stuff that we've collected over the many years and make our home ultimately nice and tidy when you think it's time that you'll be leaving the planet. Um, and clearly, Swedish people are a good deal less squeamish talking about this than, than we are. But, but I think death cleaning and getting our affairs in order makes perfect sense and will save a lot of time for our loved ones once we're gone. You're never going to get anyone to see this positively with that kind of terminology, though. I, I happen to think this is a really good idea. I was very fortunate that my parents moved uh, a few times in their adult life. And my mom just packed up the children, the things she'd been saving from the kids, you know, their their kindergarten pictures and, and lots of things. And she sent them to us. 
they were moving to an apartment. They weren't going to have room for all these things. Uh, you, they didn't want to be thrown out. And they streamlined their life in a way that when they passed away, thankfully many years after that, it made our jobs much easier. We didn't have to go through a house packed with a lifetime of piled up things. Everything was organized. Everything was accessible. And I think that that moving is a good opportunity to do it. You know, people who move out of the house they've been in for a long time uh, is a good opportunity to to simplify a little bit. And it and it feels good. When I when I moved out of my last house about eight years ago to a smaller house, I still have a lot of junk, but but I didn't miss anything that we gave up in that in that move. So I, I do recommend this approach, but I really don't like that name. <laughs> <laughs> so you think that that we should call it streamlining, not death. Cleaning. Well, you didn't you didn't make up the name. I just think it's it's very Swedish and it's off putting to Americans. Okay. you know who are endlessly optimistic and we all think we're going to live forever. So it's it's a good idea. And you know, I mentioned to you that this was faintly related to this podcast and maybe you're scratching your head Jim and saying what the what the heck is he talking about but I do think that that streamlining is part of what we need to do with with government debt we need to to look at all the junk we've collected over the years and and I have to admit as a liberal that does include government spending as well as reforms for our tax system and just face up to this face up to what we've done in recent decades Wow, I love that idea. I love the way you're thinking. I've been reporting a lot on energy policy and the need to build new infrastructure and to expand energy capacity. And everything is so hard to do because of these layers and layers of regulation and programs, many of which overlap or contradict each other. We kind of need to go through, you know, all of our policies in the just in that area and and simplify it and make it more more straightforward because it's getting so clogged up it's almost impossible to get anything done and i'm sure that's true in most other sectors of the government as well so i was just suggesting gently that it's also true in our in our private lives as well as the government <laughs> but you have a more jaundiced take on the government than i do <laughs> yeah of course that's the whole point of our podcast um but but you know somewhere in that dialectic hopefully some good answers come out and this is how do we fix it i'm richard davies and I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And How Do We Fix It? It's a production of Davies Content. We also make other podcasts and help clients with making their own shows. So if you want to find out more, go to DaviesContent.com. That's the end of our commercial. And that's the end of our show. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.